0: How about we don't try and make food perfect? Because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect.
1: If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly.
0: The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order.
1: Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. We've all had the experience of buying that apple or avocado and having it go bad before you can eat it. It's so widespread that there's literally memes about it now. Have you ever wondered what exactly makes food go bad and what we can do to slow this process down? The folks at appeal sciences took this real conundrum of how to make our favorite foods last longer and answered it with a game changing new product appeal is an innovative plant based coating that goes on your favorite fruits and veggies to keep them fresh for longer, which means less wasted food and less stress about squandering money on avocados you're never going to eat and more delicious meals as well. Today's guest is the head of sustainability at Appeal, Jessica Vera, and she's here to discuss all things ripeness and food waste and share how Appeal is making it easier than ever to waste less food on the farm, at the store, and in your home. Jess, welcome to the podcast.
1: Riley, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Really excited to have you here. I think, as I alluded to in the intro, your product is touching on a really visceral problem for a lot of people. I think we've all felt the pain of having something you're really looking forward to eating go bad. And I'd love to start there with uh, walk us through what is going on here scientifically when food goes bad. You know, how do fruits and vegetables ripen and then turn south on us?
1: It's a great question. Um, At at Appeal, we're really focused on two of the primary causes of spoilage, and that's water loss and oxidation. So once a piece of produce is picked or harvested, uh, the clock starts. And what happens is water is going outside of the fruit, basically evaporating out of the fruit. Um, across the peel. And so the fruit, that's when you see it start to shrivel. It's not quite as crisp as it used to be. And then the other issue is oxidation. So oxygen getting into the fruit. And that's when you start to see the spoilage on the inside, the browning. Um, and so the way that our product works is it creates this you know, little extra peel on the outside of the produce and it creates a barrier that slows down that exchange of gases. So slows down the water leaving and the oxygen getting In. Um, And so it's extending the shelf life by just slowing down that process essentially.
0: Amazing. So just taking basically it sounds like the two the two things that drive uh stuff going bad and just making sure that happens at, at a slower pace. So you have more time to eat that avocado.
1: Exactly. And it's really just mimicking to some extent the way that a peel typically works. So, you know, it's not like you pick a piece of produce and then all of a sudden it's a puddle. You know, it takes time because produce already has, and really all plant materials already have this protective layer um, in the peel, in the skin. It's just some are a lot more effective than others. You know, an orange obviously lasts so much longer than a strawberry. Um, But what The appeal R&D and scientists found in the early days of our company was that when you took a microscope and really looked at this at a material and at a molecular level, both that orange peel and the strawberry skin were made of the same molecular components. They were just structured differently. And so that was really the idea behind creating a peel was we can use all of the same things that we're already consuming um, that are already in our fresh fruits and vegetables, and we can actually structure them in a specific way to create this little bit of an extra peel um, that slows down that rate of water loss and oxidation.
0: What is a peel made of on, on a basic level?
1: A peel is made of lipids and glycerolipids. Um, That's the core component. Um, But essentially, it's, you know, they're found in every bite of fruit or vegetable that we're eating already. Um, And so we like to say that we're using food to protect food. um, And they can be sourced additionally from really any plant material. Um, So they're naturally occurring. uh, And again, you know, food to protect food.
0: I love that simplicity of that. So you're you're again mimicking and, and using the same substances that are that are keeping fruits uh fresh naturally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, I'm I'm curious if you can touch on it. Seems like some fruits like we've we've talked about are just inherently tougher to deal with. And, You know, like for example, why is it that avocados present such a challenge in terms of ripeness? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but that was one of the first fruits appeal started with, right? Was avocados.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I think there's I mean, there's a couple of different reasons why avocados are more challenging. Um, but, you know, for one thing, there are some fruits that are what you would call climacteric. And those fruits, once you pick them, they, that, you know, it's not like they're, gradually spoiling over time they have to ripen first right Uh so you have this whole process of you know they're developing a better flavor profile they're getting closer to being ripe you're waiting you're waiting you're waiting finally it's at that ripe time and then you have this short window before they spoil Um, you know bananas are like that mangoes avocados and so that's very different than you know something like Broccoli or cucumbers, where you pick them, that's about as good as they're ever going to be. And you want to keep them as fresh as possible for as long as possible. Um, that is, you know, a very different way that we design our formulations and optimize things than when you have to kind of get that window at the right time in the supply chain for the consumer to be as long as possible. So it's it's a timing game to some extent too. And so we. We optimize our product for not just different produce categories, but even different supply chain scenarios. So we might have a slightly different product for avocados grown in California and sold in Seattle than we do for avocados grown in Peru and sold in Germany Um, because it's, it's very different what we're optimizing for.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I appreciate what you said. It's a timing game because everyone I've talked to in the produce industry just stresses that, that it is remarkably stressful for the farmer to pull something out of the ground. And like you said, there's a ticking clock as soon as it comes out of the ground or off the tree. And depending on how far it has to travel, it could be an uphill battle just to get it to the, someone's table in, in decent shape. Um, Yeah, that's, that's definitely, it seems like the thorny, thorny logistics challenge. So you're saying you, you literally optimize the product depending on how far the given fruit or vegetable is going to have to travel. That's, that's wild.
1: Yeah. Not just how far, but you know, what are the, what are the conditions in which it will be traveling? So, um, you know, we've started doing some work in emerging markets as well this year. We, you know, we had done some in the very early days of our company, but we're, we're focusing there. um, know much more now and in places where there's not as robust cold chain infrastructure um where there can be breaks in refrigeration or you know the climate is just different then you have to optimize the product differently too you know if if it's really humid in a certain place that's going to affect how quickly the produce ripens or spoils and so you might you know optimized slightly differently um, than you would in a you know really dry cold region for example so
0: well yeah
1: it's <laughs> there's a lot of things that affect you know they're living bre- literally living breathing <laughs> things so
0: yeah yeah we had the ceo of abigo on the show do you know about abigo these uh, beeswax food wraps
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So she's left me with a quote that I just love. I'm probably going to misquote it now, but it's basically like your food is alive. Like it's not this passive thing. Like it is living and breathing until you consume it. And I think you bring really great awareness to this was what you're talking about, that all of this stuff is living and breathing and like trying to stay good but we're, we're not uh, doing it any favors, you know, by making it travel so far sometimes. So yeah, I think it's the, the potential of the product there is, is huge. Uh, I'd be curious to hear like, what's been the reaction. I mean, let's start with farmers, right? Cause they're the people that are living and breathing this stuff and probably stressing out about, is my avocado going to make it to market? Okay. Is that maybe the supermarket would reject the load because the quality is not what they wanted. Like what is the, what is the response been from the farmers you work with?
1: The response has been pretty positive. And it again is really different depending on uh, the value is very different depending again on the supply chain and the size of their operations. So as I mentioned, we're starting to do some work in emerging markets where, you know, this might help a grower just reach a market in the first place um, or be able to reach a higher value export market. We've seen that also with some specialty crops that we've worked with where the perishability is so high that, you know, they could only sell to local markets um, before introducing our product. And then, you know, for a lot of, for a lot of our partners upstream in the supply chain um, it offers a product differentiation that didn't really exist before. So, you know, the produce industry is very commoditized. um, And so a retailer or consumer, you know, when you go to the grocery store, you're not looking for a particular brand of, you know, cucumber, really, you know, you might look for a variety like long cucumber versus a Persian cucumber. Um, but you're not necessarily looking at a specific like supplier. Um, and so the appeal product is a differentiation that the grower and the packer can actually add onto their product that engages the retailer and the consumer more because of that additional value. So um, it can certainly create value for them in that, in that regard.
0: That's really interesting. So I wanted to touch on two things you said, one, you're saying it's allowing folks to reach markets that might not otherwise reach. Can you elaborate a bit on what that actually means for folks?
1: Sure. Um, so one of our, or actually our first customer, uh, was a local, um, grower, uh, Goodland Organics here in Santa Barbara County. And they had, they grow these finger limes they're called or caviar limes. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And- they're, they're a trip. Just if anyone hasn't seen one they're they're exactly what you said. It looks like your finger and then you open them up and they have these tiny little lime dots. So yeah, they look like caviar and, uh, really yeah, they're unique
1: little, they're little like juicy beads of lime juice essentially
0: yeah um
1: they're used a lot as garnishes and for cocktails and and they're super tasty um we would even just like you know grab one and just eat them um but they have an incredibly short self, short shelf life like a few days once they're picked and so this, this um, local grower, you know, could only really sell to like local restaurants and, you know, definitely only within California. And so we started, you know, this was one of the first products that we actually commercialized um, was in a small partnership with them. We were able to allow them to ship these finger limes nationally um, and gave them so much shelf life extension. And so I think on the order of weeks that they could actually distribute um, and actually reach markets that, you know, they never would have considered just because they would have shriveled by the time they got there otherwise. And so that's, that's, you know, one example in a, you know, more developed region with a specialty crop. But then if you think about, you know, places like sub-Saharan Africa where small and rural Distributed growers don't have access to the cold chain. They're yeah. go, they're going through the exact same thing. Um, the reasons that those barriers exist are different, um, but you know, sure they can reach the local market. But their neighbors are all growing the same crops that they are. So then you have a supply demand challenge, hmm. and so. That's where we're starting to do some work to see how do we use our product to help them actually reach the regional and the high-value export markets Um, because there's such a demand for, you know, avocados, mangoes that grow there um, where there might not be as much of a demand locally.
0: That is fascinating. So it has quite profound economic impacts, it sounds like, for folks working with it. This this can open some doors to markets that might not... Otherwise, reach just because their product wouldn't last.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Wow, that's super fascinating. Adam Perfect, yeah, we had worked with this company called Jolly, where they basically empower small female farmers to ship fruit uh, by drying it. So they do like dried pineapple and mangoes and such. And a lot of it, I think, is from Haiti and Sub Saharan Africa, which you talked about. But I hadn't thought about this other angle to it that, yeah, in a way, like drying is one way to, to extend the reach. And then the other one is like you got to find a way around, um, the fresh stuff from going bad, which is, it's been a, a you know challenge for our species for thousands and thousands of years now is how do we get the fresh stuff to the people that want it while it's still good? It's like, it's a really core theme you're tapping in on as a company.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, it, right. As an economic issue, like the challenge really is trying to convert what is this like perishable asset into a non-perishable asset yeah. I, or, you know, money, um, and you only have so much time. And so that's really, when we think about what we're adding to the supply chain with the appeal, with the appeal product, we're really adding time. And so it's always a question of in each context, how can that time create value and also, you know, positive outcomes environmentally and socially by increasing income opportunities and improving livelihoods.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. Anytime I get a question where someone's like, you know, why it seems like the food system just so complicated, like, why is it that things like surplus and waste are so pervasive and hard to change? And an answer I always start them with is food doesn't behave like other commodities. Like at the end of the day, you cannot make food operate like electronics, right? Like you can't, if you have a surplus of iPods, it's not nearly as big a deal as a surplus of mangoes, right? Cause those mangoes, like you said, they have a ticking clock on them. So I love that you're embracing that challenge head on and fearlessly and using a, a technology, but in a way it's, it's sort of a, a basic, or it's like a technology that was always there. You're just kind of optimizing it. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're really just, we like to say we're not, we're not trying to control nature. We're not trying to you know, battle nature. We're just trying to work with nature and figure out how, um, nature has figured out how to do this well and just make that more robust and, um, you know, build upon that. And I think what you're touching on too, is this, this issue of, um, the system dynamics too, and the role that that plays. And we, because we work with, you know, upstream growers and the packers and the produce suppliers, but we also have a consumer facing brand. So we're involved with the retailers and companies like Imperfect and your consumers. We have visibility into that whole system and see how the different dynamics and even incentives can influence waste as well, in addition to the perishability. So I think what's interesting is, you know, ideally if you optimize the whole system you could reduce more waste but you need all these different actors who aren't really used to talking or collaborating and who might only be worried about getting the produce just to the next stage yeah. in good condition you know what is their incentive if it's a commoditized product to not get it further mm. um, and give more days to the consumer, for example? These are some of the things that we're observing at Appeal and trying to, you know, find ways to influence too.
0: No, really, well said. I think we all ought to think a bit more upstream than we're accustomed to, and a bit more holistically. If we're talking about something as complicated as a sustainability issue like food waste, it's it's you gotta embrace that. Like, okay, but what's happening upstream of me that's causing this outcome for sure? You know, you touched on the consumer. What has been the consumer response from this? I mean, if from my end, the idea of an apple that won't go bad longer or an avocado that won't become a meme making fun of itself like this seems like a game changer. I'm curious to hear what, what's been the response so far?
1: It's been great. You know, it's, it's not easy launching a new product um, that the world has never seen before that consumers are eating too. Right. So it's, you know, definitely a lot of education. Um, but the response has been really great. We actually, because we have large partnerships with retail organizations, we're able to measure how appeal produce performs compared to, you know, conventional produce on their shelves. And at least with avocados, which is the product that we have, um, you know, the largest commercial presence with, um, at least last year, we saw an average of 10% sales growth on retail store shelves with appeal. And at the same time, a 50% reduction in waste on their shelves. So kind of
0: battling both sides. Yeah, that's huge. 50% less avocado waste through appeal.
1: Yeah, exactly. Game
0: changer. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like both the farmer and the store would want that, right? Because that means their inventory is just like easier to deal with. And then the end consumer in turn doesn't have to watch their avocados turn south.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we really view it as a win-win-win. And also, you know, by reducing waste, there's climate impacts that come along with that, too. Um, And so going back to the the whole system perspective, we use life cycle assessment to really understand how appeal affects the whole system, taking responsibility for all the impacts to make, distribute, and apply our product, but then ultimately looking at the net benefit um, after taking that into consideration from reducing waste. And so, you know, with a 50% reduction in waste, that also has significant, you know, global warming impacts too. I think um, based on our data from last year, for every truckload of avocados, we were avoiding 1.4 metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Whoa. That's wild. I mean, we're having this chat during Earth Month, so this is super top of mind for us. You know, it's perfect. We're trying to raise a lot of awareness about the ties between food waste and climate change. For folks that are newer to it, you know, because you know, you work you work in sustainability, so I'm, I'm very curious to hear your angle on this. How how are food waste and climate change interconnected, and kind of how is appeal working to address that through your work?
1: This is a great question because it's it is somewhat counterintuitive. Um, so. I think a lot of people think when you throw away a piece of food, it ends up in landfill. You know, there's methane emissions in landfills. That's where the climate impacts are. And that that's true to some extent, but actually the larger impacts on climate are all of the activities and resources that went into growing that produce, the irrigation water, the energy that went into All of those inputs, fertilizer, pesticides, the transportation and refrigeration of that food, everything it took to store it and package it and get it to the shelf and into your home. When you throw away the produce, you're throwing away all of the resources and all of the emissions that went into that as well. And so actually, you know, the produce that's (laughs) the worst to throw away from a climate standpoint is what has already gotten into your home because we've put so much into it already. Yeah. And so that's where that's that's where it all really adds up. And so you know, estimates are that food waste actually accounts for 8% of all global greenhouse gas emissions and wow. would be the, and if it was a country, if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter behind the
0: U S and China. Yeah. Every time I hear this, it's, it's, it's truly Mm -hmm. mind blowing. I, you know, I appreciate what you're talking about. It sounds like, you know, kind of like this life cycle analysis approach really helps draw the connection for folks that by the time the asparagus, the avocado arrives in your house, there's such a long tail of resources that went into getting it there that that's where, if it goes to waste, all of that stuff has essentially just been, you know, dumped down the drain or kind of emitted in vain in the case of, in the case of carbon. Yeah, no, that's super, super well said. And and it's just a key through line, I think, thinking about Earth Month and thinking about how can all of us be a part of change here? Because, I mean, I read that uh, I guess asparagus is one of the most climate intensive crops to eat because a lot of it is is air freighted to U.S. supermarkets.
1: Yeah, that's true. mind Yes, yeah, Because it's so perishable. Yeah. Um, Especially when it's coming from Peru, yeah, it's, it's often air freighted, and there are certain parts of of Europe that you know rely a lot on air freight just because of the travel distances. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. that's yeah, wild. that's an area that we're always looking out for is where there, where there not just these incremental improvements that our technology can help with, but these kind of transformational changes, um, by shifting a mode of transportation, or as we talked about before, creating those market linkages.
0: Yeah. You know, as, as you've scaled this, uh, concept of appeal, you know, what's been one of the biggest challenges for your company?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, And I'm I'm sure you experienced this at Imperfect at first as well. It's a disruptive technology. Um, The agricultural industry is not the most agile industry, I would say. And it's really risky to try something new you know, you're risking an entire harvest, right? And that's, and you don't typically have, you know, very large margins to work with in the first place. And so I think really that's been a big part is demonstrating the value, using communication tools to even explain what the product is. And I think developing a consumer-facing brand is a really important part of that too. um, Because there's a lot of, post-harvest products that help with you know s- different things throughout the supply chain but they don't consumers don't really know that they exist in our case you know our product also has benefits for consumers so it's really important but it's also a transparency thing too you know you want people to know what is on their food and you know not just feel comfortable but be excited about that so i yeah. think the education piece is is a big one and then just you know, prioritization in a, in a growing business where we've been able to demonstrate that our product works on dozens of types of produce Mm. and, but we can only, you know, (laughs) go one step at a time and, you know, we can start to take steps more quickly. Um, but you know, we have to focus and scale and make sure that we're, you know, going in the right order, um, and things like that. So that's just I think part of any startup. But yeah. I would say that's that's always gonna be a challenge.
0: For sure. I, I appreciate what you said about uh farmers being reluctant to take the risk because that's that is something we've encountered at Imperfect. And it's understandable to your point. I had a citrus grower in Reedley tell me. Basically, each year for us is like a science experiment. There's so many variables to manage in terms of water, cloud cover, sunshine, fertilizer, all this stuff. But we only get one run at it. Like We don't get multiple passes. Each season is is an experiment. And if they mess up or Mother Nature throws a wrench in the works or supermarkets don't want to buy a chunk of what they've grown for whatever reason... It really hurts because to your point earlier, all of those inputs are already embedded. All the money has been spent, the water for irrigation has been spent, the fertilizer has been, you know, applied, the, the labor has been through the field, you know, people have been picking this stuff in the hot sun and all of these things have already happened. And then to have this last minute thing of let's say it goes bad or a supermarket says, ah, it's not the right size for us, that's it's heartbreaking, you know? And so I I I feel like that's important for people to think. About. About it, like why are, why are farmers kind of reluctant to try new stuff? It's like, well, cause every year they're having so much thrown at them that it's, uh, it makes sense like, yeah. cause this is their, you know, um, blood, sweat, and tears and the, their heart and soul, right. Every season out there.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. Um, and you're right. I mean, we talked a little bit about the environmental impacts of food waste, but the economic are, you know, the, they estimate that the global costs of food waste $2.6 trillion.
0: Wow. That's insane.
1: And yeah, that, and it's, you know, to some extent it's like this invisible tax on the food system um, because it's just baked in. And, yeah. but you know, we're trying to look at it too as this kind of invisible savings account as well. Totally. Like if you can unlock some of that value, then you can afford to invest in these new innovations, new business models um, to continue to improve the sustainability of, of the system. Yeah. But yeah, it's <laughs> quite big problems that we that both our organizations are are tackling.
0: Yeah, I mean and, and doing doing stuff differently like your earlier point too it it does take a lot of buy-in to get people to suspend disbelief and say no, we should try this, you know, and especially where there's you know, so much money and time and infrastructure involved with agriculture it can, that can take a while to get that wheel turning. Um, you know, the analogy that came to mind as you were talking was it kind of sounds like, you know, appeal is almost like just better insulation for the house. Like the house could just, you could, your heating bill could be astronomical. And you could try all sorts of fixes, but like a basic fix is just make sure the house is insulated. Because if you're just dumping heat out through some crack or poorly insulated ceiling, no amount of tinkering around the margins is going to help until you address that insulation. And it sounds like in a, in a way, this food loss that's occurring in the supply chain—you know, avocados and apples and oranges going bad—it's it's that kind of heat loss, right? And you're coming in and saying, what if we were to insulate the linkages between each step to keep it from to going to waste and yeah. Like to get, get rid of this invisible tax and, and just make it work the way we would all want it to work.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's that it makes the system more resilient too. Right. Cause you know, with, if we keep going on your insulation example, it's like maybe it's not that big of a deal for most of the year, but then, you know, when a blizzard hits and your power goes out and you don't want your pipes to freeze, like it makes a really big difference. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it helps incrementally in, in normal, in the normal conditions, but when there are these fluxes in the system and, you know, you can't always perfectly match supply and demand, especially with perishable, um, goods, as you just mentioned, it gives you that extra buffer in order to figure it out before it spoils. Um, and in, in some ways, a little bit of added insurance, um, when there's infrastructure issues, supply demand issues, we saw border closures with COVID and that resulted in a lot of food waste. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's a tool that can help with resilience and it kind of really depends on the context. And, and I think that's another thing with scaling and buy-in is not getting our partners And a lot of them do this in a really great way, but in the beginning, really getting them to see this as a tool and getting them to actively think about how they can use this as opposed to a normal product where you're like, these are all of the product benefits and like, this is how it will perform. And we can explain that, you know, you have this extra time and, but they know their business way better than we do. So they're really the best ones to know, oh, here is where it can create the most value or reduce the most waste or... Um, and so, you know, really it's a partnership to, to find where that value exists sometimes.
0: Yeah, the resiliency piece you brought up, I think is huge. I appreciate you bringing that up, because, you know, just in the past year and a half, right, 2020 and 2021 showed us food supply chain disruptions, like you talked about border closures, you know, here in the US and, and in Europe and abroad and elsewhere. Um, as well as, you know, grocery stores suddenly being out of certain things and farmers having to dump food or even euthanize animals because they're, you know, the demand was disrupted. And then we had extreme weather events, right? You know, we had fires and hurricanes and um, cold snaps, right? And so to your point, yeah, if we're thinking about, okay, how do we start to climate-proof the food system? Like a basic low-hanging fruit here is like, let's make it easier to sh- ship food where people need it. Let's make it easier to stay fresh for longer. I think that's, yeah. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, thinking about the long-term potential of appeal, I'm sure you've done some, you know, uh, calculations here. What wh- what do you see as um, the t- opportunities in the future to prevent waste? Like what type of environmental impact and financial impact do you see this product having in the longer run here? <laughs>
1: That's a that's another good question. Um, the right now we've been really focused on the U.S. and the EU in terms of the con- consumption markets. So we've mostly been focused on avoiding food waste. Um, we also you know, have a product for long English cucumbers that's reducing the need for for plastic packaging. Um, but we're starting to shift attention also to these emerging markets, which not only can have these market linkage effects that we were talking about, but also can get at upstream food loss more as well. Uh, you know, cause these more developing economies, they don't, they actually have higher food loss and food waste is what we're learning more recently. And so, and a large part of that really is the lack of infrastructure and the you know, climate conditions to some extent too, and so we really see there being a big opportunity to tackle food loss upstream in the supply chain, um, but also create these income opportunities for growers um, and smallholder farmers in these regions. And then I would say, in terms of growth, it's it's really just about you know new products, new geographies, just scaling the business uh, to meet the demand and always, always figuring out ways to do better, um, within our own products, uh, and, you know, kind of being the ones to be ourselves here too.
0: Yeah. Super exciting. So more, more parts of the world. It sounds like there's more potential there. And then I'm curious to hear, you know, right right now you're in, you're on, um, avocados, apples, you said cucumbers. What, what other products do you currently uh, apply appeal to?
1: So in the U S it's, um, avocado, you, you know, you mentioned three of them and it's, it's organic apples actually. Um, and then limes. And then in the EU, it's, um, uh, avocados, oranges, mandarins, grapefruits, and lemons so far. awesome. Um, so those are the ones that are launched so far and that's in, you know, for the U S market and several regions in the EU, so the Netherlands, Germany, um, Norway, um, Denmark, and then in order to supply those regions, we have integrations with suppliers in the U.S., but also in Mexico, Peru, Chile, um, and are expanding into parts of Africa as well.
0: Wow. So it seems like you're very much just at the start of this journey in terms of what this product can do, what uh, vegetables and fruits you can apply it to and, and where people can benefit from it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: That is awesome. I mean, exciting times to be working at appeal. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the same as imperfect. It's, it's really fun to see, see all of your growth and to get it, get to be a part of it too. Our team was so pumped um, to see when I think a lot of our team were probably on the ordering end of that too, because they were already imperfect customers. But um, yeah, it was so exciting to see um, appeal within your box and you know all over the country too. I was getting messages from family on the east coast like, "Wait, appeal is in my. I can put this in my order for imperfect." It
0: that's great. That's so cool. I mean, well, because I had, I forget where I read this or heard this, but you you do have an interesting marketing problem in like people might not always know where to get it. Like, I think I saw this actually on your Instagram. It was like, what is Appeal and where can I find it? Because it's kind of hiding in plain sight.
1: Yeah, that's that's totally true. I mean, we have a store locator on our website. Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, we do for, in some of our retail partnerships have, you know, in-store signage where you can kind of see, you know, the produce that lasts twice as long and the Appeal logo. Yeah. Um, but there, it, it is, you know, we're one step removed from the consumer. So it's really a partnership with our retail partners with imperfect yeah. um, and trying to engage the consumer, but yeah, it's a, it's not super straightforward. Yeah.
0: yeah. Not super exciting stuff. You know, a theme I was thinking about as I was reading more about appeal and, you know, eating the apples from appeal in my box was, This idea of individual choice versus tech, the power of technology, because this seems to be kind of at the heart of a lot of these pressing environmental problems we face. And and it seems like appeal touches on it a bit. So I'm curious to hear what do you think about, you know, how much do we need to reeducate eaters about how to just be better stewards of food and and how do we. Or how do tech, tech fixes interact with that? I'm sure it's kind of a both and, but I guess I'm curious to hear, You know, where do you see potential and kind of change needed in the intersection between us relying on technologies to be more sustainable and, all, and us teaching each other to be better stewards of the environment?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you're never going to be able to do anything without doing anything to make any system more sustainable if you don't consider human behavior and it's not to say you always need behavior change but you have to understand the dynamics and how like what what the consequences might be of a technology introduction um, and I really see you know companies like Imperfect and Appeal promoting and really educating on the issue of food waste, ways to address it in your home, not just by being our customers, but by changing your habits and managing your own kitchens and shopping behaviors in a better way. I almost see that as like a confounding factor, you know, if you're if you're buying appealed produce, you know you're going to have more time, so that already gives you an extra edge in terms of being able to reduce food waste. And then if companies like Imperfect and Appeal and like Kroger, for example, who's one of our biggest partners, has their big Zero Hunger Zero Waste program, if you're also being educated on the importance of food waste and ways to manage that, then you're even less likely to throw it away. And so I do think there's it's like a one plus one equals three situation if we can address both, um, and and so I, I do think that it it has to be in sync. You can't really do one without the other um, in a, in a super successful way.
0: Well said. Yeah, it's uh, I like that one plus one equals three thing. You know, we uh, we always tell people, our, you know? a lot of people ask me, You know, what can I do at home to reduce food waste? And th- there's a lot of fun uh, stuff you can do at the end of the life cycle in terms of, yeah, you can get scrappy with frittatas and stir fries and smoothies and stuff. But one of the most basic things is also just don't buy more than you need, which is like kind of one of these simple behavior change or kind of lens changes yeah. that it might not sound as glamorous, but it's also... It might even be higher impact. So I, I always encourage people, like you said, kind of a both and, or like, think about how you can make maybe two changes that add up to even more than either one, right? So you should absolutely know about scrappy recipes, but you should also, you know, plan your meals intentionally. And, and I love that you're, you're taking that approach as a company as well, you know, through your journey through sustainability, what have you learned about food waste in the U S or kind of what's your take on it, uh, these days through working at appeal,
1: Oh, that's my take on food waste in the U.S. Um, I think that there has been, since I got involved with appeal, I think there has been a, a growing kind of discussion and everyone is generally, I think, more educated on the issues of food waste Um, I mean, I think it's exciting to see that, you know, we finally will have some policy related to, you know, some meaningful policy related to food waste, hopefully, um, with this new administration. And that, I think, is the core component of it as well. Um, You know, I think there's a really broad spectrum in the U.S. on awareness about these issues. And um, I think in this year in particular... With COVID, I think there's been more focus on it. I think what I'm wondering is, as you were just mentioning, you know, you're planning your meals, planning your meals better is a huge piece of it. I think, you know, we've all been at home since <laughs> then. I know at least personally, like I have wasted less food because it is easier to plan because I know I'm going to be eating at home every day. Yeah. Um I'm hoping that we take some of those behavior changes that we adopted during this you know time that's been a little more isolated and we don't lose them when things do open up again and we can't go out to eat all of the time and you know we still are just as conscientious as we were before um, but I think. It's, it's a big challenge because if it, it has to be valuable to you, we know that it hits the, you know, the pocketbook, I guess, for lack of a better word of American households. Um, but it kind of depends on how much, you know, of a pain point that is and whether people are used to that. And it is again, this invisible tax that he, people aren't paying attention to.
0: Yeah. Wasn't the best answer. Um, no, but that, that was a great I, answer. I I liked what you said about, uh, keeping in touch with stuff we learned during the COVID time. Cause I think, you know, we're recording this in April, 2021 stuff is beginning to open back up. Folks are being vaccinated, which is super exciting. And I think a lot of us are very eager to get back to normal and kind of rush back to how things were. And it's important to note, as you remembered, like there was some really positive growth, I think that happened for us, especially environmentally in the past year of like learning how to really take ownership of what we're cooking and, and how we're planning meals and, and all of that. Um, no, I think it's huge. I mean, I think another thing you brought up that I think is really great is I think there's some forms of environmentalism that are so um, public, you know, when people think about like the plastic in the ocean, right? Like that's such a well-publicized problem. There's really shocking images of this garbage patch and it's like, it's it's there, it's in front of you, it's explicit, what you're talking about with appeal is like this kind of invisible environmental problem that people don't see the waste that happened before the avocado even got to the supermarket, much less their home, but it's still happening. And so I think it's really important yeah. what you've brought up. Like there, there is so much waste happening upstream and outside of our sphere, that we, and we, and we can't forget about it. And it seems like that's a really interesting lens you bring to this is that the, the, everything has a, has a bigger footprint than you might imagine, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, we always joke at appeal that we have an invisible solution to an invisible problem. Yeah. Because, you know, you can't see that our product is on the produce and it's (laughs) solving a problem that, you know, we're, we're, people are becoming much more aware of, but it's, it's not like plastic pollution where you see it right in front of you. Um, Although, of course, you know, we're trying to address that in some places as well. I think air quality issues are similar.
0: Um, Yeah. Oh, 100%. I,
1: I worked on air quality issues in my, some of my my master's work and it's the same thing it's so you don't see the problem the way you see other types of pollution. Um so it is it's always a more challenging education uh problem.
0: Yeah, no it's uh it's it's super important to think about yeah, there's there's so much stuff kind of hiding no a brief tangent, and I'll I'll get into our, our closer questions here. But we had uh, um, the founder of Rewilder on the podcast, and basically they upcycle industrial material waste into really hip, awesome clothing. And what I loved about that model that I'm I'm actually seeing a lot of overlap with appeal is that most of us, for like for example, they, there's these um, waterproof covers that go on cars that are shipped from China to the port of Long Beach to you know go into the U.S. right and uh, and it become sold as cars in the U.S. But most of us don't even think that that material exists, and that it would go to waste after these journeys. But you know, this lady did some asked some questions. She had some follow up questions, and found out that these perfectly awesome waterproof covers for cars were going to waste after these journeys. And she said, "Okay, well, could I have it?" And they're like, "Okay, yeah, great." And then she makes really hip raincoats out of it now. But like, you know, there there are these you know like plastic straws and these things we all think about. Oh, that's waste that's happening. And then there's all these invisible waste uh, streams that are just kind of hiding out of plain sight. And so I love the you bring that lens to it of of, of of think bigger and think about like, what is the waste that I'm not seeing? Because sometimes that's even more pervasive and insidious than the stuff that maybe you see on the evening news every night.
1: Yeah. And I think it's really encouraging to see that companies like Rewilder that you just mentioned um, and others, you know, Kroger's Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Innovation Fund is all focused on upcycled materials yeah. this year. And the we're not just focused on, okay, how do we reduce waste? How do we reduce our environmental footprint? Which is, is definitely important, but not super exciting or sexy or, you know, no one's like raising their hand to be the next entrepreneur to do that. But now these are business opportunities. Yeah. You know, these are, there's economic value that's being lost in that waste that we're realizing we can uncover and that those, um, those inefficiencies, these, those inefficiencies, can be investable into something that is a great business. And so, I mean, imperfect is obviously a a perfect example of that. Not an imperfect, perfect example. Um, but I think that that's really encouraging and there's so much momentum around that these days. That makes me optimistic.
0: Yeah, for sure. I d- definitely would echo that. I think upcycle, there's so much more to upcycling. I think we're just uncovering as a society that to your point, yeah, we're literally throwing away economic value in addition to hurt- harming the environment. And-, and there's a way to turn it around, but yeah, you have to, you have to have curiosity about like, what if we were to do this differently? You know, the love rewilder example. I just love, cause again, we wouldn't think that there are these waterproof covers on cars as they make a trans-Pacific journey, and that those would go to waste. But then you just need one curious person to say, "Hey, what about those? Could we do that differently?" You just need one curious person to say, "You know, what if what could we do to make avocados last longer instead of just accepting, like you said, losing you know fifty percent of them as a cost of doing business?" And it's. Uh, I love that. I love that through line. I always like to end with kind of an actionable personal thing. So I'm curious for folks listening who want to reduce waste in their homes, you know, kind of what advice do you have? You know, obviously, you know, buy stuff with the peel if you can. Um, but you know, what what tips do you use in your life to reduce food waste?
1: I think the biggest thing for me is the fridge management. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I try to be pretty diligent about having our fridge clean and kind of knowing what's in there. Um, I don't buy a ton of stuff that I'm, that I don't know when I'm going to use it again, that's way easier during COVID. Um, so I I try to have a plan for how I'm going to use everything when I buy it. And I'm also a pretty boring eater. I don't know if most people would like this, but I'm like totally fine with eating the same two things for lunch all week, um, which makes it a little easier to plan. Um, but yeah, those are, those are the things I think in terms of food waste that I, I try to focus on the most and try to get creative. Um, even with, I've probably made more banana bread this year than ever before because we're home and, you know, baking is fun, but also, you know, a good excuse to get rid of those extra bananas. So, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. No, I mean, the fridge management thing is huge. Like we've done a bunch of content on our blog about how to clean out your fridge and why that's so important. And Yeah. Folks haven't tried it or haven't done it recently would definitely urge it. I'm remembering now I need to clean out my fridge. It's been, it's been too long, but it's like, to your point, it's such a great way to just get in touch with what you have, what needs to be used up. And I've also found it also helps you spot patterns in your own life that you might not know about otherwise. Like wow, I really stockpile this one condiment for some reason. I should probably tone it down, you know, buying. I don't need like three bottles of sriracha necessarily. Um, or like, hey, I, you know, I'm doing a great job with whatever cheese or, or lettuce. Like I, I always have just enough, but kale, I seem to always have too much of. And it's just you get like an almost mini like real-time bar graph of how you shop, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Fantastic tips there. I'd love to get to the speed round. These are some fun closer questions to get to know you a little bit better and share some more fun advice with folks. Uh, the first one is, is there anything you'd encourage folks listening to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time?
1: Uh, my personal interest right now is system dynamics. So, I mean, I talked about it with appeal, but there's some great, um, I mean, it really applies to Every industry or product, and it's just fascinating, so systems dynamics is yeah, my pitch.
0: <laughs> love it. Um, what's a system you've learned about recently that blew your mind or you thought was interesting?
1: Oh, um. I mean, I'm really interested in the the role of incentives in business when it comes to system dynamics and like how things like vertical integration can affect things like waste. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's a big part of what I'm interested in right now.
0: Awesome. Super cool. Check out system dynamics, folks. It's good stuff. Um, what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks should try?
1: I'm sure a lot of people are already doing this, but just going for a lot of walks. Um, And I think, you know, it's a pandemic. It's been a challenging time for a lot of people. And um, I think just like forcing myself to get outside and go for a walk every day doesn't mean I'm going to go for a really aggressive run, but um, just yeah, being outside kind of in a meditative way sometimes or on the phone while I'm walking, talking to family. Yeah, Yeah, That's a big thing for me.
0: Excellent advice there as well. If you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what will you make for them?
1: I definitely go with more of the comfort food category. So the thing that came comes to mind to me is lasagna because it mm. kind of feels like I have a great family, um, like vegetarian lasagna recipe and it kind of feels like a labor of love too because of all the different steps. Um, but yeah, probably lasagna.
0: Awesome. What ingredient could you not live without?
1: Sweet potato. This one, this one's hard. Cause I feel like I could go in so many different directions, but it would be really hard to not have sweet potato.
0: <laughs> I think you're the first person to answer sweet potato. We get a lot of salt, butter, olive oil, which I totally get. And I think are great answers. I'm curious why sweet potato.
1: I mean, I, I love the taste of sweet potato, but I also feel like it's really versatile. Like if I had to survive off of a food, it would be sweet potato. Yeah. Um yeah. It's yeah, I just love it. Like I'll literally just I'll make like sweet potato chips, sweet potato fries, mashed sweet potato, like anything. You can make it sweet or savory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're packed with nutrients too. I did not realize how healthy what they were until I started eating them pretty regularly. It's like, yeah, definitely an easy way to level up the micronutrients.
1: Yeah. They're even great for like breakfast dishes too. So.
0: Yeah. My sister's really into like a sweet potato breakfast hash. That's how she'll start a lot of days. It's like super filling and hearty. Yeah, uh, Awesome. Good stuff. I'm happy to see someone standing up for the humble sweet potato. I feel like they get overlooked. <laughs> <laughs> what is your least favorite thing to waste?
1: Lettuce because it's one it's, it's, the hardest one to keep for me at least it's the hardest one to keep from going to waste um and yeah so it's it's just it's the hardest
0: (laughs) yeah what is your go-to karaoke song
1: i want you back by the jackson five i have a kind of high voice so i can like hit the high notes so
0: fantastic answer that is a great song And definitely, yeah, always gets people going. Who's somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them?
1: So as I recently became a new parent and I just have so much admiration for single parents. I can only imagine how they do it. I mean, especially this year, but really any day. Yeah. So just in general, I'm... So impressed um, by single working parents and and how they are able to manage everything and just how selfless they really must be. So, yeah, yeah not true. one person but one type of person.
0: No, that's a great answer. True superheroes, I definitely, hundred percent agree and I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, finally, what are you grateful for this week?
1: I'm kind of going off of the same theme. It would be family um, near and far, I think, you know, lots of zoom calls <laughs> over the course of this year, but I have a really big family. Uh, my parents are both one of seven. And oh, wow. so, yeah, it's, it's just great to have that community and just generally that's probably most weeks. Family.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Definitely good, good thing to, to ground in, uh, and tough times and, and through all this transition. Um, well, Jess, this has been such a great conversation. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do at appeal?
1: Uh, they can go to our website, which is www.appeal, A-P-E-E-L, if that wasn't clear before.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn and you know, we are on social media and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, so yeah, check us out. We have a great sustainability page too. And and reach out if there's anything that you think we could work on together.
0: Fantastic. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes and on our website. That's the wholecarrot.com. The wholecarrot.com is where this podcast and all of our podcast episodes live. So definitely check that out if you haven't yet. Jess Vera, thank you so much. This has been a true pleasure.
1: Yeah, Riley, thank you so much for having me.